Amen. That's good singing. Let's take our Bibles tonight, please, and open up to the Old Testament book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, and we're in chapter 3 for our study tonight. Is this ready to go? Oh, so it is. All right, very good. Okay, well, if your Bible is open at chapter 3, let's uh, bow our heads for a, a word of prayer. And um, we've got some territory to cover tonight. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, thank you again for allowing us here tonight. Please use the scriptures tonight to cause our hearts to love you more, desire you more, and to look forward to uh, a precious time each morning alone in our prayer closets with you. Lord, please help each and every one of us to learn how to, to find you and know you so much better by daily meeting with you in a, a little secluded place we might call a prayer closet. Teach us, Lord, how to make use of prayer and uh, open the eyes of our understanding that we might see perhaps some of the, uh, the, the great blessings we've lost because we haven't spent time with you. Lord, help us to love you more. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this is our third message on the book of Song of Solomon. Chapter, we're in chapter 3. And we made a special mention when we began a couple of uh, Wednesdays ago that uh, the primary application of Song of Solomon appears to be uh, a love sonnet, if you will, uh, between basically two married people. There is a, an outline that we gave you on how um, uh, the Shulamite uh, uh, was uh, loved by Solomon who ended up marrying her. Now, most uh, conservative Bible scholars seem to agree that this goes beyond the simple love between two humans, and it illustrates for us the great love that God has for his people and his people have for, for him. Now, um, I know we don't see a lot of the latter. We see a lot of the former, God's love for us, but we don't tend to see a whole lot of the latter, the love of God's people for him. You say, how do you know? Because um, Christians the world over, as a rule of thumb, tend not to live their lives for the Lord. They, they love the Lord and that they appreciate he's there, but it doesn't go too much further than that. Now, that's maybe a, a rule of thumb, but it's certainly not, um, um, you know, the, the order of the day with all Christians. There are a lot of Christians that just love the Lord exceedingly. And um, whether they, they live um, a day or a hundred years, they want to live their life for the Lord and uh, follow him fully and closely. And praise the Lord for um, every Christian who has a great desire to love God. But um, I think that maybe when we get to heaven, we're going to see way more of the, the other side of this. We're going to see more love uh, from God's people to God. Now, in the Old Testament, if we had been living in the Old Testament times, we would align ourselves with Israel 
because that was where God had deposited all of the truth and so on. God is the one who set up the temple and that sort of thing. So if we were living back in those days, that's the uh, dispensation, if you will, that we would uh, be worshiping God in. Now, salvation has never changed. It's always God's gift through faith. Abraham illustrates that for us. But we're not living in uh, Old Testament dispensation and the Old Testament law. We're living under grace. Salvation is still the same, a gift of God. So that hasn't changed. But now the way God deals with us has changed. He doesn't deal with us after the law. He deals with us after grace. This is the the New Testament, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, if you will. And so it's sealed in Christ's blood. This is the New Testament in my blood. You remember that? And so uh, we rejoice you know, in this grace, this access, wonderful access that we have to God. We just need to make more use of it. If we were living back in the Old Testament dispensation, in order to get to God, we would have to go through a priest, a mediator. But now every believer has direct access to God. And that's called, theologians call that the priesthood of the believer. That's why in a local church, when we want to know the the mind of God, we have everyone talk and pray about something, and then we kind of put it to a vote. And the, uh, the thinking being is that the mind of God is found in the body of the people. This is as we seek the Lord. Now, if we, you know, run everyone to his own corner and backslide terribly, we're never going to find the mind of God, never. But if the system is done the way God has set it up, that we can find the, the will of the Lord in the mind of God on things. And that's why we, from time to time, we have a vote on things. And we always tell people to think this through, talk it through, and pray it through. Very important. Well, anyhow, getting back to the subject at hand, we see a tremendous uh, relationship between God and his people. And his people, uh, when this was written, was Israel. Israel is still uh, the apple of God's eye. Let's never forget that. That's never changed. Israel um, ceased to be a nation for some 2,000 years. They were scattered abroad. Well, God's bringing them back together, right? Since 1948, they become a nation again. And they're uh, certainly coming to the forefront of the world's scene. They're going to be back on the front. When the Lord Jesus comes and takes his bride, the church, home, then the world enters this seven-year tribulation period and Israel is going to be front and center again. And God will use the tribulation period to purify to himself a people. And by the end of the tribulation, Israel will recognize their Messiah and they will receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And we're going to be there somewhere just cheering them on. Praise the Lord. Well, this, if this is true, that the Song of Solomon shows a relationship of love between God and his people, then that includes us, folks. And um, we've been looking at that throughout this, um, this book so far. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's get let my notes organized here. <laughs> and away we'll go. So we've got a a simple chapter outline for you. Now, it doesn't get too much simpler than this. Watch carefully. All right. Okay, we're in chapter three. Are you ready for this? Okay. 
Here it goes. Here's your chapter outline. That's it. <laughs> Throughout the, uh, the book of Song of Solomon, you have the narrative changing. Sometimes it's Solomon speaking, sometimes the Shulamite speaking, and a couple other places, I believe the, um, uh, the brothers of the Shulamite have a word to say, and, and a few of the, uh, uh, the women of Jerusalem have a word or two to say, but essentially it's between the two main characters. And so here, um, the Shulamite is uh, doing the talking, and it started in chapter 2, verse 16. Remember we said last week, to be continued. Well, here in uh, chapter 3, it's continued. <clears throat> uh, and so, let's see, what do we got here? We've got her, uh, her dream of Solomon. It's kind of broken into two, two halves, if you will. Uh, let's look at it, verse 1. By night on, on my bed, I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. Now, um, again, there are hundreds of books, commentaries written on the Song of Solomon, and some of them are really wild and fanciful, and you'd think that the writer was on drugs or something when they wrote it. But uh, there's a lot of different ideas. But the conservative Bible commentators and Bible scholars tend to feel that uh, here she was having a dream, that this was a dream that uh, she was experiencing, and she was seeking Solomon, but didn't find him. Now, I want you to notice her intense love for Solomon, because you'll notice... Um, uh, these four little words, this little phrase, whom my soul loveth. You see that in verse 1? Well, go to the end of verse 2. She says it again, whom my soul loveth. Go to the end of verse 3. She says it again, whom my soul loveth. And go there to about the middle of verse 4, whom my soul loveth. So four times she makes uh, uh, this, this little catchphrase, if you will, and it seems to really underscore her love for Solomon. Now we know that um, uh, many, most, I would hope, um, wives have this uh, tremendous love for their husbands. Um, and this is the kind of love that uh, God's people are to have for God, whom my soul loveth. And you and I, we really need to underscore this. In my Bible, I, I under, underline those four times that this phrase is mentioned, that she uses it, and I numbered them, one, two, three, four. And I even drew a line between them to show it, make it jump off the page here, because it's uh, so important, I think. Now, um, this seems to be a, uh, a dream that she was having. So she says, by night on my bed, I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. Did you know that most people will at some time in their life have a dream about losing a loved one? That's very common. For some of us, it, it happens uh, more frequent than we, uh, we, we, we wish. Sometimes we have weird dreams, isn't that right? Sometimes we find ourselves doing things and you wake up in the morning and say, I can't believe I dreamed that. I can't believe that. I can't believe that I, I had that dream. That is so unlike me. I would never do something like that. And yet I, I dreamt I did it. And that can be uh, quite uh, shaking. 
Well, uh, it's kind of common for people to, uh, at some point, dream that they've lost a loved one or a loved one's been taken from them. And that appears to be uh, her situation here. Now, we move into verse 2, and she seems to panic. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the broadways. I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. And so she's searching the streets up one and down the other. Now, as I understand, um, in the, the large cities and even Jerusalem, the girls that would be out on the streets at night were not the kind of girl a guy would want to take home to his mother. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. They're the kind of girl that, you know, looks for someone by twilight. And so this is definitely, has to be a dream <laughs> because she would not be out on the streets at night. But it's a dream. Anything can happen in a dream. So she seems to panic and she's, she's running maybe uh, up one street, down the other, and she's looking for... Uh, him whom her soul loveth. Verse 3, the watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, saw ye him whom my soul loveth. So she begins asking the night watchmen if they've seen Solomon. Again, part of the dream. Verse 4, it was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. And so she finds him and brings him home to her mother's house. Say, so why'd she do that? It's her dream. So ask her. <laughs> she probably doesn't even know why. But uh, in verse 5, we see something that we've seen before. And now she's talking to the daughters of Jerusalem. She says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field. Now, rose and hinds were type of, of deer. That ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. Now, if you just look back at chapter 2 and verse 7, lo and behold, there she is saying it again. She says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. Now, many scholars <clears throat> suggest in their commentaries that this is actually a vow of sexual abstinence until they're properly married. Boy, do we need to hear that message today. Today, most uh, couples... Um, have premarital sex way before they're married. Many of them live together for years, uh, having uh, not only sex, but children, and then finally decide to get married. And boy, have we ever put the cart before the horse. This is not God's plan. Um, so going back to this verse, this verse 5, the uh, commentators suggest that uh, this is something good here, that... Um, this can be understood to be a, a vow of chastity, if you will, or sexual abstinence until they were properly married. And then the scholars now go on to suggest that starting in verse 6, and listen to this, all the way through to, ver to chapter 5, verse 1, describes their wedding and the consummation. 
And that's why we have some very interesting details when we get to chapter 4. Chapter 4 has got a lot of stuff in there that, you know, we say, oh, don't let the children read this. And we wonder, why is that in the Bible? Well, we're going to be looking at that. Um, yeah, it'll be next Wednesday, next Wednesday. We've got an evangelist coming a week this, uh, a week this Sunday. See if I got my date right. Yeah, that, that's correct. It's a week this Sunday. That's right. So we got one more Wednesday left before he comes. So we'll get to chapter four. There's eight chapters in the book of Song of Solomon. And so we're going to at least get half of it done. So um, she now begins, uh, starting in verse six, she now begins a description of her beloved. Now listen carefully. This is not cheap flattery. This is sincere praise that she gives to him. Cheap flattery is not worth the paper it's printed on. This is sincere praise, honest praise that she gives him. And in verse 6, she describes a beautiful, aromatic, majestic sight of his kingly power. In verse 6, Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? Now she's describing Solomon. Um, remember, bear in mind that uh, from here on, it appears that the narrative is talking about their, their wedding when uh, Solomon comes to claim his bride. And so she's saying, oh, you know, who is this that cometh? I've read one commentator where they said the, the pillars of smoke may be uh, dust clouds off the hooves of the horse's I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that makes interesting reading, doesn't it? But we just don't know. Uh, so verses 7 and 8, she now begins to describe the uh, armed guards <clears throat> that surround Solomon. Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Three score valiant men about it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. Now, it was very common and still is for uh, kings, and not just kings, but very, very wealthy and important people to have security guards. Very common. Uh, King David had 30 valiant men that would stand watch while he was asleep so that an assassin wouldn't come and kill the king. Here we've got David's son, Solomon, and Solomon seems to have doubled that guard. Now, why he did it? Again, some of the commentators really go off, you know, off in the left field with some wild ideas as to what this 60 represents. Uh, bottom line is, we don't know. Maybe he was uh, just very, very concerned for security. And so here's Solomon. Um, and uh, I don't think at this point he took her back to the, uh, the palace in uh, Jerusalem that they had their honeymoon, their wedding and honeymoon some, someplace outside of Jerusalem. So that may be why he had the extra guards. We, we don't know. But um, anyhow, verse 8, she describes the bed, the, the marriage bed, and... Um, 
I'm sorry, um, yeah, she describes the guards around the marriage bed. Now, there's something interesting I'd like to point out because we've been talking about a parallel in this book between uh, Solomon and his bride and God and his people. If you were to go to the book of Isaiah, to chapter 6, and read that famous passage, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You remember that? High and lifted up. And do you remember what was around the throne of God? Someone said it. Cherubims. Yeah. These uh, are angelic beings that guard the throne of God. It's just interesting parallel, isn't it? Um, Say, why would God need that? Well, we're going to ask him when we see him. Uh, So now uh, we move into verses 9 and 10. And she begins to describe this gorgeous chariot that Solomon built, probably for the wedding. But uh, look at verse 9. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. Now, Lebanon was known to, uh, to have the, the best cedar trees in the world. Um, you often see that in the scriptures, the cedars of Lebanon. And the cedar wood was very prized. Uh, the cedars seem to just grow naturally and abundantly. Well, as I understand from uh, my Lebanese friend, Emil, who I miss, I haven't seen him, he's moved away, haven't seen him now in months and months. Uh, I asked him about that, and he's from Lebanon. He says, well, it's no longer the cedars of Lebanon. I said, what is it? He says, it's the pines of Lebanon. I said, what happened to the cedars? They cut them all down, he said. So things have changed a bit, haven't they? The world changes a little. Anyhow, in Bible days, uh, Lebanon was known for these cedars, and uh, it was very um, expensive wood. And Solomon, of course, being the king, he could afford anything he wanted. He built this fabulous chariot. Now, don't think of a chariot uh, as this one tiny little thing about maybe the size of this pulpit where, you know, two men would stand up in there and one guy would have a bow and an arrow and the other guy would have the reins on it or something. Or maybe you've seen that Charlton Heston movie. uh, What was that called again where they race around with the... uh, Ben-Hur, yeah. Boy, that was a famous scene, racing all those chariots all around. Uh, But this kind of chariot was not that kind of chariot. This kind of chariot would have been quite a bit bigger, and it would have been like a big carriage, if you will, on wheels, uh, horse-drawn and so on, and gorgeous and expensive in every way you can think. Verse 10, he made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold. Wow, what a chariot. Um, the covering of it uh, of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. And so she describes this phenomenal, gorgeous chariot that Solomon built. Did you know that all of God's creations are beautiful? And that heaven, God's creation, is so gorgeous it's beyond description. It's beyond our ability to even understand When we get to heaven, we're just going to be, you know, our mouths are going to be dropping as we're looking and trying to take it all in. You imagine if there's a time machine that could bring a man from maybe 300 years ago and bring him up to today. And he he looks around at the streets and he sees these boxes on wheels flying by. 
and he hears a, a noise and he looks up and there's some big metal thing moving itself across the sky. And everyone's walking around with these little things glued to their, to their ears. Hmm? And the way we, we dress. And then he back in the time machine and 300 years back to his own day. And he gets out of the, th- the time machine and his, his friends come and, and say, well, Jebediah, what did you see? What was it like? And he says, well, uh, oh, they had these. Uh, and then, then you should have seen the, oh. If any of us would go to heaven and see God's incredible creation of heaven and then come back, there's no language. There's no language to describe it. We would just go, it was just, I'll never forget it. It was just, and the colors and, oh, and and it had these, I don't know how to describe them. Eh? That's your testimony of heaven. I believe that all of God's creations are absolutely beautiful. And verses 9 and 10 help underscore that. Now look at verse 11. And I want you to see how she brags on his majestic beauty. Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. She's not ashamed of him, is she? She loves him so much, she brags on his majestic beauty to the other women. You know, I think Christians ought to always be ready to give a testimony. We ought to learn how to brag a little on our Savior, the lover of our soul. The Jesus of the New Testament is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. He is God Almighty. And I think Christians ought to give testimony and tell other people how wonderful God is. Now, we're going to just bring things to a conclusion here. And then one week tonight, God willing, we're going to get into uh, chapter 4, where now Solomon does the speaking, or in the analogy, God does the speaking. But tonight, folks, do we even realize the prayer power that the Song of Solomon has given us so far? I'm sure that most of us have read through the Song of Solomon. Some of you have read through it a few times. But do you realize that in the Song of Solomon, you are actually given incredible prayer power in the book of Song of Solomon here. Many Christians wonder how they can have an intimate relationship with God. I'm one that believes in the prayer closet. And, um, boy, I harp on it, and I mention it, and I preach about it, and I encourage it. Every Christian needs to have a time alone with God. And uh, there are Christians who try it, and they say, I tried it, but it doesn't work for me. I get into my prayer closet, and I read a a few verses here or a chapter, and I I get on my knees and pray, and, you know, after about two minutes, three minutes, I've I've shot the wad, you know. There's nothing more to pray for. I don't know. What do you do then? And I've tried it. Maybe it would be better the next day, and I try it, and it's no different. And this is a common Christian testimony of the prayer closet. Well, we're going in there with the wrong attitude. The book of Song of Solomon here actually gives us incredible uh, powder or fodder or what have you in order to have a tremendous relationship with God. 
you and I, we can greatly improve our intimate devotions with God Almighty in the prayer closet if we'll sort of follow a little pattern given to us right here in the book of Song of Solomon. And here it is. God has basically given us one of the great keys to having a great devotions with him night and morning. Uh, we've been given a powerful prayer tool that we can use. Doesn't matter the time of day, but it's this. How to worship God Almighty. As Christians, we know we're supposed to worship God. We know we're supposed to pray to him. We know we're supposed to follow him. But often it's easier said than done. You know, we say, oh, I would if I could. If I would if I knew how. You know, I tried. Doesn't, you know doesn't seem to get very far. Well, that's what the devil wants. He doesn't want you and I knowing any secret about how to really move in close with God and love him and to come out of the prayer closet with a glow on your face. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to find intimacy with God at all, day or night. And yet we have the uh, prayer tool given to us here in Song of Solomon. Now look at verse 1 again. She says, by night on my bed, I sought him whom my soul loveth. And we made comment that this appears to be a dream. But did you know that a great time to seek God is when you go to bed? Did you know that? You can go to bed and last thing you, you do before you, you go to sleep is you start talking to God. And on your bed, you can start to seek God. How many here wake up sometimes after an hour, two hours, three hours after you've gone to bed. Can I see your hand? How many wake up? Well, that's about half of us anyhow. I'm curious, how many sleep the whole night through? Eight hours uninterrupted sleep. Two hands, three, four hands? Okay, well, we got a few hands that didn't go up there. <laughs> that's all right. We're used to it around here. Uh, but anyhow, I, I'm one of those that wake up. I like to get to bed early because I like to get up early. But I get to bed early, and then sometimes after an hour, two hours, I wake up. Got to get out of bed for a few minutes, you know what I'm saying? And come back to bed. But that's a beautiful time because the house is quiet, the street is quiet, everyone's asleep, and there you are all alone with God. And you have a golden opportunity to start talking to God and to start to pour your heart out and start to pray about a few things as well. And I'm going to get into that for a minute here. But um, this chapter 3, verse 1, suggests that we can meditate upon God at night and we can seek him in prayer. Now, King David wrote in Psalm 63, verse 6, he said, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Now, there's King David, a man after God's own heart. And that's what he did. I, I believe that King David went to bed and woke up after an hour or two hours or something like that. Say, how long was he awake for? Who knows? A few minutes, an hour, half an hour, maybe two hours, maybe some nights he didn't go back to bed. I don't know. But he got into the habit that when he would go to bed, he'd meditate on the Lord. He'd wake up in the night and uh, maybe have to run to the little boy's room or something. But get back in the bed and he'd start seeking God and start praying. It's a wonderful, it's a gorgeous, it's a precious time to do it. Now, if you're afraid you might forget, write, write yourself a little note. 
make a little note. Uh, have you ever um, tried to, re- to remember something? Maybe, um, maybe you were in bed and you said, oh, tomorrow morning I've got to remember to do this. How many of you have ever had that happen? All right. Well, uh, usually the next morning you forgot. And then around noon, oh, no, I forgot to do what I was supposed to do. A great memory trick is to take something, maybe off the nightstand, and throw it out in the middle of the floor. Something that looks unusual, something that looks crazy, so that when you get up in the morning, you you know, you open your eyes and you look down and say, what's that doing on the floor? Oh, yeah, you see? So that's a great memory trick. And uh, you say, now, when I get up in the morning, when I see this, I'm going to think of, and you fill in the blank, and you throw it on the floor, and then you go to sleep, and you sleep good. You wake up in the morning, there it is. What's that? Oh, I remember now. It's a great trick, and it'll hardly ever fail you. So if you think you might forget this trick about meditating on the Lord in the middle of the night, put out a little reminder or something. It could be you could set your Bible up or something, but make yourself some kind of little reminder. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Lord. And then you can start to meditate on the Lord and think about his goodness. And this is a real key. Now, I want to spend just a minute here, and I want to look at the devotional pattern that we've been given in the book of Song of Solomon. We're just going to make an application is what we're going to do here. Go back to chapter 1, if you wouldn't mind. Chapter 1. I'm just going to go through these quickly with you, and then... We're going to be finished the study here tonight, and we're going to go to prayer. Uh, Chapter 1, and um, this here is Israel speaking. Verse 3, because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Praise the Lord for his name. You know, God is a good name. He has a wonderful name. You know, I tell you, there's a name that's above every name. Do you think you might know what that name is? Jesus. He's been given a name, which is above every name. And one day at the name of Jesus, what's going to happen? Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That's our Savior. That's our beloved. And you can whisper that name in prayer. And you can thank the Lord and and praise God for that name. Jesus. Wow, what a wonderful name that is. Look at the same chapter. Look at verse 16. And this is Israel, uh, or, or the Shulamite speaking. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. See that? Thou art fair. Tell God how wonderful he really is. These are things that if you will do in your prayer closet, it will open up like a rose. You will open up a wonderful relationship with God. And you can do this in the middle of the night or meditate on the Lord in your bed or get up and get in your prayer closet early in the morning, get on your knees. And you can start and tell the Lord how wonderful he is and praise him for his name and tell him how great and magnificent he really is. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. Now, all of these uh, in context is... um, the Shulamite, the the bride speaking, okay? All of these I'm going to give you. Chapter 2 and verse 3. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so was my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And I suggest you tell God how wonderful his Bible is to your taste. 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We're told as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Did you know that the Bible has taste? And there are some people that have no taste for the Bible. Sometimes the Bible is an acquired taste, but it's God's book and it's fruitful. And again, something we can praise him for. That's why it's a great idea uh, in your morning devotions to spend time reading the word of God and look for ways that you can improve your relationship with him. You want a good Bible study? You can start at Genesis and just start reading through and every, everywhere that you see that would help your walk with God, your relationship with him, make a note of it. You'll build yourself a little diary book of scriptures that'll teach how you can have a closer walk with him. Now, this is so important, this pattern we've been given here and how we can worship the Lord because as we read through three chapters now, we see this lovely bride giving sincere, honest praise to her husband. And this is something that every child of God can do with God. Uh, You don't want to try and use some kind of cheap trick in prayer and try and butter God up and use cheap flattery and, and, and talk out of the side of your mouth. That's no good. Uh, I don't think God wants to hear that. But if we would praise him for, uh, for his name, for, for his, his wonder, for, for his Bible, and, and thank him and praise him in prayer alone, things will start to open up. Chapter 2, verse 8. The voice of my beloved... The voice of my beloved. You know, you need a desire to hear his still small voice to your heart. Uh, I know you've heard it. I know you have. If you're saved, you've heard it. Because um, Jesus made that very plain and clear. He that heareth my voice and openeth the door, I will come into him. So even if it has to go back to the time you were saved, you heard that still small little voice. Maybe you've forgotten what it sounds like. But you can hear it again in your prayer closet if you'll desire it, if you'll ask him, if you'll seek him. Uh, Verse 9, tell him how powerful and how beautiful he is. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. Tell God how powerful and wonderful he is. Uh, Verse 16 says, my beloved is mine and I am his. Wow, I like that. Feel the confidence of that love relationship. Him for you and you for him. Chapter 3, verse 6. You admire his majesty. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all powders of the merchant? Remember, we're not talking cheap flattery. We're talking honest, sincere praise. And the more you get to know God, the more these things will flow from your heart and flow off your lips. And as you do it, you'll actually honestly feel that gap close. You'll feel your hand in his. That's why your prayer closet is really your, your powder room. Boy, your powder tank or something. It, that's where your meat and potatoes. That's, that you have to have it. If all you ever get fed is on a Sunday morning, from the sermon, you're, you're missing it. You're missing out so much. You've got to have every day meet with the master. And the last one here is uh, verses 9 and 10. 
King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made uh, the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of purple, and the midst thereof paved with love. You admire the beauty of all his works, the beauty of the church, the beauty of salvation, the beauty of heaven, the beauty of the mansions that Jesus promised us and so many, many other things. This can and will change your life with God if you follow this simple pattern, if you'll do it. If it's just head knowledge, it won't go any further. But if you put it into practice and you try it, it'll actually work. Now, I gave you one little tip. This is is a good tip for the men back in chapter 2. See verse 6? Husbands, this is a tip for husbands and wives. This is not a tip for unmarried people together. This is for husband and wife together. Verse 6, his left hand is under my head and his right hand doth embrace me. Now, there is a tremendous tip there for every husband. Try that out on your wife and ask her, uh, tell me what you think of this. And just hold her around the waist with your right arm and support her head with your left hand. And maybe give her a little bit of a dip, if you can. Some of you guys aren't as strong as you used to be. And, uh, and say, well, what do you think of this, honey? Do you like that? She's going to say, oh, yeah. <laughs> she's going to say, yeah, mm, me like that. Yeah, that's what she's going to tell you. You see that? Now, if you just read it, if you just sat down in front of your wife and says, honey, what do you think of this? If I put my right arm around you and support you, you know, with my left hand under your head, do you think you'd like that? You would. Good to know. What, what's, what's for supper? <laughs> You're not going to go very far with that kind of attitude, that kind of philosophy. You've got to do it. You've got to put in a practice. That's why it's important that maybe even tonight, when you get home, you go to bed, you start meditating on the Lord. It's good to have a verse of Scripture that you can meditate on. That's good. It's good. If you watch horror movies and then go to bed, no wonder you have nightmares. Yeah. If you, if you watch worldly things, worldly things, and then go to bed, no wonder, you know, you, you feel empty inside. Get a good verse of Scripture and meditate on that. See, what I'm saying is this. We were never meant to have some kind of sterile, you know, miles away relationship with Almighty God. We were meant to have a close, intimate relationship with Almighty God. If you've been missing that, don't blame God. We need to do our part. God is the lover of our souls. He loved us so much, he died for us. And we need to learn how to get in the habit. You know, a lot of women don't have a problem. The wife will say to her husband, I love you, honey. I love you so much. I love you. I love you. And then she's waiting for him. And then he'll say, yeah, me too. But that's not what I want to hear. You know, you know I do. You know, I told you once when we got married. Well, that's not enough, is it? And she needs to hear that back from him. Am I right or am I wrong? I don't know. It's pretty quiet here. Right here. No one wants to... Yeah, well, it's right. I tell you, it's right. I've yet to be proven wrong on that one. I've been proven wrong on a couple of things, but not on that one, folks. You know, gentlemen, your wives need to hear you You need to look into her eyes and say, Honey, I love you. I thank God for the day I met you and that you married me and let me marry you and I want to grow old together and, you know, go to heaven together and you're just it for me. And I know that doesn't sound so mushy, but that's the kind of thing she needs to hear. 
just like he needs to hear some good encouraging words out of her. Well, listen, God has given us a Bible full. It's a love letter. And now we need to do our part and we need to start expressing our love to God and tell him. That's why you need to get alone. You'll, you'll speak to God better alone than you will with a bunch of people around. You need to get alone with God. Your best prayers should be when you're alone. And so he is the lover of your soul. And he says so in the Bible. And you and I need to love him back in prayer.